Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning, as we will be in verses 27 through 30 of Philippians chapter 1. My wife and I definitely covet your prayers, as you could see, we can't even get through a baptismal ceremony without children running amok. Jim's going to come and exegete God's word, proclaim the gospel to us this morning from Philippians chapter 1. Read along in your own Bibles as I read verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This sends the reading of God's holy and errant infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. So this section of Philippians 1, Paul is dealing with obstacles to our joy. And and the past couple visits that I've been with you, we've looked at a couple of these passages. And in the first section, in verses 12 to 14, Paul is dealing with uh, what it's like to have crummy circumstances. He himself was in prison, and yet he was finding joy in the midst of that. And then the second obstacle that he mentions is that there's often troublemakers in the church who are seeking their own promotion instead of the exaltation of Christ. And Paul gives us a reason for joy in the midst of that trouble. And then in the third section, he talks about the uncertainty of the future in in a very real fashion. He talks about his own future of life and or death and how there's joy even in that. And then in this section right here that that, uh, Andrew just read, It talks about the fear of opposition and hardship. And so Paul says that the solution to fear of opposition and hardship is for us to strive together and to stand firm. Now, I don't don't know what comes to your mind when you hear those words, strive together, but for me, it sounds like hard work. It sounds like pushing a car. There's that sounds like something that, that opposes us, a car that won't run, and you've got to push it. And if you're by yourself, unless you're built like me, it's impossible to push by yourself. And most of the time, we need other people to help us. And then standing firm, to, to me, looks like an NFL lineman. Uh, somebody who weighs about, who's about 6'7", weighs 350 pounds, and is standing in the door, and there's no way you can get through the doorway. Well, the reality of the gospel is that we're not strong like that. And instead, the the gospel, we have to find the power of the gospel working through us from the Lord Jesus for us to strive together, stand firm. And Paul shows us how in these verses. So I have three things about the gospel that I wanted to share with you this morning. And uh, the first one is worthy conduct. Now, the late speaker of the house of representatives, it was a man named Tip O'Neill, and if you're less than 40, you've probably never heard of him, but he was famous in the 70s and 80s for ruthlessly leading the House, and Tip said that all politics are local. 
And nowhere was that more true than in the Roman Empire. Even though you have the empire wrapped completely around the Mediterranean Sea and you have emperor worship and kings in various places, it boiled down to it that in the small villages and the hamlets around the, the empire is where the power and the taxes were raised and where things were done. And every little city had its own tribal customs and manners, so much so that the Greek word for conduct or behavior comes from the same word for city. And the idea was is that your conduct reflects your city. And your sense of community and belonging to that city affected how you lived. And so Paul takes that cultural phenomenon from Roman life and and he writes it into our passage. And what he's telling us is that there are customs and manners that are integral to the gospel and belonging to the city of God and the city of God's grace, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because our citizenship is in heaven... He's telling us that we are to live a certain way. And Paul says that that life is to be a worthy life, worthy of the city of God and worthy of the gospel itself. Now, when the average Christian hears these words, thinks about living a worthy life, the first thought usually goes to some moral issue that we're struggling with. And that's good because character and morality matter in the kingdom. The gospel is not licentious. But What's missing most and what's most necessary in a perverse and immoral culture, even like ours, is not ethics. You're not going to win arguments on Facebook. What's missing most is love, radical love and a community of love. And sacrificial love is at the heart of living a worthy life for the gospel's sake. So here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this is almost word for word what he's written to the Philippians. Paul says that in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter what happens to him, life or death, whether he gets to see them again or not. What matters is how you live. And living a worthy life, standing firm in one spirit, striving together as one person for the faith of the gospel without being afraid of opposition. The first thing that Paul mentions in both of these passages, in Philippians and Ephesians, is not morality, but humility and unity and love for one another. And and this is the culmination of everything that Paul has been saying in Philippians since verse 12. He says, I'm in chains, but I have joy because it's for the advancement of the gospel. He says, there's troublemakers in in the church who are out to hurt me and promote themselves. But he says, I rejoice because Christ is preached and the kingdom is advanced. And he says, I, I, I face the uncertainty of life and death and not knowing when my end will come and whether I'll bring the Lord's shame or honor, but it doesn't matter because either way, in life or in death, Christ is exalted. And so now in this passage, he says to the Philippians, you face all the same hurdles, the same obstacles as I do, and what matters is whether the gospel, the kingdom, the church advances And how it advances is by living rightly. 
And the worthy gospel life is about humble unity, bearing with one another in love, giving up our own preferences for the sake of another, living for others in the light of a hard life, striving together in the face of opposition, standing firm in struggle and conflict and one spirit. Now, Sherry and I traveled to India. That's considered the world's largest democracy. They have a parliamentary government. But in many places in the world, you have totalitarian dictatorships. And in those kinds of governments, the good of the individual is swallowed up by the good of the community. What matters is the whole, the community. And if necessary in that type of world, the individual is sacrificed to the good of the whole. And that's definitely the philosophy of communists and socialist countries and Islamofascism. But in the West, in, in, in America, in democracy, the good is usually defined by the individual. We are often reminded that the rights of the individual are not to be trampled by the rights of the majority. And the latest issue that we see politically in our country is over which bathroom you get to use. If necessary, we will sacrifice the good of the whole for the sake of the one. Well, the reality is that neither of these philosophies is biblical. This is not about the kingdom. The kingdom says that if that the commu- what's good for the community is good for the individual always. And what's good for the individual is always good for the community. The two serve each other together. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. So giving deference, we serve other people, but we do that together. And And so that serves to instruct us and help us to know what's good to do, what the worthy life looks like. So if it's good for my poor brother or my poor sister to eat, well, then it must be good for me to give them food and to be generous. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. Or if it's good for men and women to get together and pray, well, then it must be to the benefit of our leaders to gather them and lead them through prayer. You see how this works? You think about what's good for everybody. It usually works for the individuals. If you think about what's good for the individuals, it works for everybody. If it's good for me to seek God and to have devotions and spend time in prayer by myself and to grow spiritually, then the purpose of that growth must also have a community good. My growth never happens just for me. It's always for me and for the body of Christ. And this is so central to the city of God that the Bible says that if you don't love your brother, if you don't love your sister, well, then you don't love God at all. Now, that's why I love team sports. Actually, they teach us in seminary that the best illustrations are wrapped around sports, so you're supposed to bring them in wherever you can. I do like team sports, however, because in team sports, it teaches us the good of the whole is wrapped up in pursuing my own good, and yet pursuing my own good must always have the team as its focus. So when my son Josh turned 13, he's almost 30, so that dates this story a little bit, but when Josh turned 13, uh, he landed on a neglected baseball team, and they needed a manager, so I became the manager of the team. And this was a, this was a, thir- a group of 13- and 14-year-olds, and the 
14-year-olds had hardly played at all as 13-year-olds because the previous coach was not looking to the future. He was only looking to the present and wanted to win. So, so the team I inherited with Josh had 15 rookies on the team, and we were terrible. No one had ever pitched an inning. We had moved from the small diamond to the big diamond, and nobody had ever pitched an inning on that 60-foot mound. It was a catastrophe. In one game, we walked nine batters in one inning. <laughs> and so at spring break, we were one and six, and we were just thankful to, overjoyed actually, to have won that one game. I think it came back down to our last at bats. We managed to get one more run. But something was special was going on in this little team. There were no superstars, even though we had some talent on the team. But we worked hard in practice, and the assistant coach and I were relentlessly teaching fundamentals. And uh, when they messed up, they did push-ups. We didn't fuss. We didn't make a big ruckus or to-do. We would just say, well, drop and give me 10, and they would. And so... We were bad, and we did gobs and gobs of push-ups. In fact, we did so many that I made a motto for our team that said, we stink, but we're strong. And, <laughs> and the boys, the boys loved that motto. They embraced it, and they said it all the time. Anytime anybody messed up, even in a game, they'd go, hey, coach, we stink, but we're strong. And uh, I remember one game was so bad, they played so badly in one inning that I made them come over in front of the dugout, parents watching and everything, and we dropped as a team and did 10 push-ups. And so those boys were working hard. They were striving together. We were actually having a lot of fun. The camaraderie was incredible. And so we went, after spring break, we went on a seven-game winning streak, and we finished second in the division. And then when it came to the tournament at the end of the season between the two divisions, we swept the three-game tournament and won the league. And you see, we stood firm, striving together in the face of opposition. And as a coach, I learned a life lesson that carried over into my leadership in the church, and that is that the success of the team depended on the success of the individuals at each position. And the success of each individual was wrapped up in the success of the team. Now, that's just baseball. It's little league. It, it's not real life. It's not hard opposition. It's not the struggles you face as a family and, and as you grow. It's, there's no persecution like we see in India. But the result was the same. Victory comes through unity. Unity that's worked for. Just imagine being the Chicago Cubs and waiting 75 years to go to the World Series. Now that's perseverance. So those of you this morning who are on the fringe of this church, who come on Sunday and do little else, what is it that's keeping you from being more plugged into the life of the body right here at King's Chapel in Carrollton? Well, the second thing I wanted to show you is not only worthy conduct, but meaningful conduct. The, ne the next part of our passage is pretty interesting. In fact, it's a little bit strange. Put up verse 28 up there. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, that's a weird verse. Paul is saying that when the body of Christ 
when the church works hard together in unity to stand firm against our opposition, that this unity, this love that we have for each other is actually a sign of the gospel at work. It's a sign to the opposition that they stand under judgment and a sign to the church that we are being saved. And it's a sign that God is revealing himself. In other words, when the church consistently stays unified, when we seek not our own good but the good of others around us and set aside our preferences to do it, when when the church consistently stands firm in our gospel commitments, when the church doesn't compromise in the face of opposition, when the church does these things, it's obviously a supernatural work of God. Because there could be no other explanation for a group of people, for a couple hundred people loving each other in that kind of way. Because if you know yourself and you know the other folks in this church, you know how prone we are to disintegrate when things get hard and life gets busy. We often consider commitment at the church optional. In fact, I've noticed this over my 30 years of leadership that Church is becoming more and more simply one option among many. And so uh, 25 years ago when I first started pastoring, uh, the average church member would come 80, 85% of the services. By by 10 years ago, it was 75%. And now it's not unusual in the church in America. I don't know if that's true here, but members often come only every other week. And so it's discouraging sometime the pastors, but it's just every other commitment seems to be above that when even the commitment to little league and horse riding. And so what happens is, is we withdraw in hurt. We blame others for our problems. We begin to criticize each other. Then we criticize our leaders behind their backs. And eventually the seeds of discord are sown and the whole church rips apart at the seams. And most of us have experienced that at some time or another, and it even makes us a little cynical. Can God really work among his people? So you see what's at stake in our unity, beloved. Church unity in the face of opposition is central to the advancement of the gospel. And when I think about opposition, well, we're in, a, we're in a battle of light and dark, and it's a real battle. So there's real opposition. And right now, the opposition in part is the political advancement of the LGBTQ community. You know, what was unthinkable a day before yesterday is now a hate crime to even think today. That's how fast the world has changed. Gay marriage was approved last summer, and now the bathroom thing is an issue. And if you say anything negative to this community, then you're a hateful person. And there, there seems to be no reasoning with folks who believe this. And so, what do you do? Well, I don't know if you've heard of Rosario Butterfield or not, but she was a radical feminist lesbian uh, teaching in in New York, in Philadelphia. And uh, she ran into this older Presbyterian uh, minister and his wife who invited them into her life. And it's it's a long two-year story of her making a change from one community to the other. Well, here's the reality. The LGBTQ community is just that. It's a community where people are felt warm and welcome regardless of who they are. And the church is often a community of restriction where we don't welcome people 
where they are. They have to change to become us. And so the only way to, in, in a modern progressive culture that we live in, the only way the church is not only going to survive but thrive is as we become a community of choice where love is so real and we are so accepting of other people and who they are, then they'll be drawn to that kind of love and community where there's generosity and grace going on. Jesus says that they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And without community that's worked at and strived at, well, then we're just going to be another social club that happens to meet on Sunday mornings. And because we know that unity is assigned to believers and unbelievers, Paul says that we don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of your culture. Whatever hardships, whatever conflict we face, we work through together. So no reason for fear. Whatever opposition, cultural or otherwise, we work through together. No fear. And you see, when you stand on the sidelines of your local church and you don't get involved, you miss one of the outstanding benefits of the kingdom. And that is facing fears together because you see it's lonely out there all by yourself. So Paul tells the Philippians that standing firm together in the face of similar struggles will serve not only their own joy, but serve to advance the gospel. Now, that's pretty incredible. And their unity is a sign of grace to encourage other believers. And then, therefore, it's a sign of judgment to those who ignore God because spirit-driven unity is so radical a thing in a lost and fallen world that it's a confirmation that God is at work in his people. And so that unity then gives a whole new perspective on the promises of God that we would have purpose in life. Here's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is a favorite verse for people who are struggling to cling to. But I I want you to see that What it means for God to work together for our good has a slightly gospel twist when you realize it doesn't mean all your circumstances work out exactly like you think they should. Considering Paul is in chains facing death, the definition of good is a little different. The, The good God is promising is what's good for the advancement of the gospel. In other words, God's promise to to work for our good is always in the context of the eternal consequences for the kingdom and what brings me lasting joy. He wants his children to know joy. And so that's the purpose that he's working out in your life. And so God's not necessarily promising a better job or more money or in the case of four small kids, easier parenting. He's promising something better. He's promising that he is at work in the circumstances of our lives, in his children, in us, to bring about results for for our personal joy, but even more so for the kingdom. And that's good for us because, you see, we inherit the kingdom. So if the kingdom gets better, then that's better for us. It's like being in a family business that your parents own. If the business gets better, then you're going to inherit the business So all's good. And then this advancement of the gospel, this unity that we have in our our church is a sign of destruction to the enemies of God because only God could bring all these people together. 
And it's a sign of salvation for us. And, and that's why Paul immediately turns to salvation issues in verse 29. So do you see it? Do, do you see how free this makes us? We're as free as Paul is to, to seek the exaltation of Christ and to be world changers, a world that is changed by serious love for one another, sacrificial love even, not clinging to what is ours, but giving away what is ours freely. Because you see, when we stand together in unity, especially in hard times, because you know, you, you don't need unity if you all agree. But we don't always all agree. So unity needs to come in hard times. So when we stand together in hard times, God is working in our, in our midst to advance his own plan for eternity. Now imagine how this might change your life. Instead of saying, look at what the world has come to, which is what people my age always say. Look at what the world's coming to. Martha, look at what the world's coming to. In this case, it would be Sherry. Look at what the world's come to because, I mean, things have just changed in a minute, it seems like. But what we say instead is look at what has come to the world. The gates of death themselves will not prevail against God's unified church. That's the way Jesus is building his kingdom. God is supernaturally at work in the life of his church so that nothing can stand in our way of advancing the gospel here in Carrollton and in Carroll County. One of the groups I belong to is called the Church Planting Network of North Georgia. I'm one of the leaders and I I coach pastors and church planters. And one of our values in the Church Planting Network is not just evangelism, but relentless evangelism. Every time I read that, I think, whew, have I been relentless? Relentless evangelism. It's not very Presbyterian. So imagine such a thing. Not aggressive or obnoxious evangelism, but a never-say-die evangelism. The, the never-say-quit that prays for neighbors, even if it takes them five years to grasp the gospel. Who's looking for a moment to love, not convert. I can imagine it because it's God who says that he is giving his people and the world a sign of his work through the supernatural unity of his church. Did you know that most people in a local church who've been there over five years no longer do evangelism and rarely, if ever, invite anybody to the church or their small group? Did you know that? That's what all the studies of the church say. Anybody that's been there more than five years. Now, I there, there may be differing reasons for that, but I think it's because people, after they've gotten over their excitement of being in this church, they've run out of friends to invite because you haven't built your life around developing new relationships that you might minister and love other people. So I wonder if it's true of you that you've stopped developing friendships in which to share the love that God is building here with the rest of the community. Well, that leads us to the third thing that I wanted to show you this morning, which is gracious conduct. Worthy conduct, meaningful conduct, and now gracious conduct. Now look again at our passage in verse 29 and 30. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. 
Now, those are incredible verses. He uses the word granted. It has been granted to us. It's been given to us. This is the same word that means grace. God is giving us this gift. Now, clearly our faith is the work of God's grace. Paul says that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for we've all been saved by faith, and that is a gift from God. But how often have you thought of your suffering and your struggles and your conflict as a work of God's grace? And yet Paul says that these are both a gift from God. Now, I was at a meeting some time ago where a prayer meeting where the bulk of the prayer was that God would bless his people, his ministers, his churches, the members, their children. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that that prayer was for good things, good blessings, and, and success to happen to us in the life of the church. But this passage here in Philippians expands our view of what it means to be blessed by God. There's a great story of Elisha and the prophet in 2 Kings chapter 4. We won't read it, but I'll tell you about that story. Elisha and his, uh, his servant that travels with them would often travel around the, uh, the Israel and preaching and teaching and, and ministering to people. And so there was one place where there was this childless couple, an older couple, my age or older, and they didn't have any children. And so that brought her some shame in the community. And she overcame that by being a servant of love to the community. And so they built a room on the top of their house for Elijah and his servant Gehazi to stay with them when they came through. And that's what you do in the, in the ancient world and, and still do in many parts of the world, in India especially, you build a room up top. There's no land, so you go up. So they built a room for Elisha and Gehazi. And, uh, and so he came and went. And so finally one day he's praying and, and, and uh, he asked the Lord to grant her a child to give her a son. And she didn't ask for that, but Elisha prayed for it and told her that the Lord would give her a son. And so he did. And everybody's happy. The shame of being childless is gone. It's an incredible thing. And then a few days, a few years later, he's out in the fields with his dad, and he has a headache. Something happens, and he dies. And so I think her response to that tragedy was pretty normal. She runs to Elisha and finds him. He's not at the home. He's at his own. And she says, did I ask you for a son? In other words, what she's saying to Elisha is, I would have been better off if I'd never had a son than to experience this grief. Now, I think that's a normal response. What do you think? She essentially is saying that she would have been better off not having known the joy of a son if she was then going to experience the grief of that loss. Is she right? I don't think so. See, I think this story reveals an idol that was deep within her heart, and it may be in your heart as well. It's certainly in mine. And that idol says that God's gifts are not good enough unless I approve of the terms. In other words, I don't want anything from the Lord where I'm not in control of what he gives me. i got to approve the terms first. Now, in this story, Elisha comes and he prays for the child, and the, and the child comes back to life. And so she, God graciously gives her back her son, and that all is good. But she learns a tremendous lesson, beloved, that God's blessing is primarily about knowing him 
not simply having the benefits of his power. Because the greatest gift in the gospel is that he shares himself with us. That's what he does. He shares his glory with us. He makes us partakers of the divine nature. He makes us sons, all of us, men and women alike, and invites us into the fellowship, the eternal fellowship that he has in heaven. Now, she didn't ask for the joy, but God gave it. And she didn't ask for the grief, but God also gave that. And then he turned her grief to greater joy. And that's what Paul's talking about right here. God grants his children faith, and he also grants them suffering for the glory of the kingdom so that we might know him more deeply because we still have idols residing in our heart that need to be driven out so that we can have better fellowship with the Lord and with each other. Our king is a suffering king, and he shares his glory with us so that we might experience the greater glory of standing firm especially because we're weak. You know, there's a lot of incredible things in your Bible. There's the story of creation, which runs against our scientific worldview. There's the story of the flood, which is called a myth. There's all the, all the miracles that Moses did, and then Elijah and Elisha did, and Jesus rose from the dead. And in a scientific world, people look at these things and they say, you know, that's hard to believe. I don't think so. That's not the hard stuff to believe. There's some way harder things to believe in the Bible. And maybe one of the hardest things in the Bible to believe and to wrap your mind around is that God's strength is perfected in weakness. We live in a culture that rewards the successful. Paul calls this the elemental principles of this world that only the beautiful get ahead and only the powerful make advancement and only the smart get what they want and only the successful enjoy joy. And the Bible says the opposite, that the Lord confounds the wise with the gospel and he brings down the powerful things that exist to reveal that the gospel is about weakness because our king is a suffering king. So that meant Paul says, I boast in my weakness. Imagine a leader in the kingdom of God who boasts in his weakness instead of his strength. All the power that Paul had as an apostle to do miracles. And what does he boast in? He boasts in his weakness because he knows that God's strength is perfected in weakness. Now, to me, that's harder to believe than the miracles. The miracles are easy. That God wants me to be weak instead of strong and wants me to be humble instead of self-promoting, to be humble instead of arrogant. To me, that's the most difficult part of the Christian life. And so here's what God says in Proverbs 10, verse 25. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous stand firm forever. Now, the believer and the unbeliever both experience the storm, but the outcomes are different, and the difference in the outcome is a work of God's grace. Here's another, Psalm 20, verse 7 and 8. Some trust in tanks and some in airplanes, but we trust in the name of Jehovah, the name of Jesus, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. How is it that the righteous are able to stand firm? How is it possible, beloved? 
Well, only in our weakness, only by faith in the Lord Jesus, there is no other way. You can't grunt this stuff out. And you can see this so clearly when Peter and John are arrested in Acts chapter 5 for preaching and healing in the name of Christ. And so they stand before the council, the Sanhedrin, and they're being chastised for preaching. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, look at that, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You know, the suffering of the church is part of God's kingdom plan, not because he's some third world tyrant that just wants to experience pain, but in a sinful world, we're already sinners and we bring sin to our own situation. And it's really because our enemies are real. We're in a battle and it's a real battle. And because the suffering of the church in the midst of our enemies reveals the glory of Christ who takes weak things and makes them the power of the kingdom, you see, and overcomes the beauty of this life and makes something more beautiful out of that which the world thinks is ugly. See, every false religion in the world promotes success as the means of righteousness, It's only the good news of salvation through the righteousness of Christ Jesus alone which fully reveals that we are helpless without God's grace. And even as the church changes the world, we we have to depend upon his grace to stand firm against the enemy, striving together in one spirit. And the irony is, is that Without the grace of struggling, if we didn't struggle together, then we would turn on each other. And that's what happens in a church with disunity is we turn on each other. Instead of striving together, it's a work of God's grace that brings us together in the midst of struggle. Now, here's the bad news. The bad news is, is if you stay on the fringe of the church, on the edge... If you keep God and his church at arm's length, then you will not experience the deeper joy of unity and striving and sharing. Instead, you'll remain afraid, and the grief and the struggle will be a lonely battle that you endure yourself, but you never seem to win. Now, I know some of you have been deeply hurt, maybe even in the life of the church, by others. And maybe you think even by God himself. But you see, we are designed for deep and lasting community, even community in heavenly places. And in a sinful world where we sin ourselves, the only salvation, the only lasting joy is found in the community of God's people. And if you seek division by seeking your own way instead of seeking unity, well, then that division will even come back upon you itself. That disunity, that division. And the bad news is, is that if you'll only accept God, if you'll only accept Christ and his people on your own terms, well, the bad news is you may be shut out. And, and God will consider you the opposition instead of a friend. But there is good news, beloved. It's an incredible 
and amazing good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Even the sins of trying to set your own terms. Even the sin of not standing firm and falling over in hardship. Even the sin of not striving together in one spirit. He died for all those sins. And and he rose from the dead to give us new life so that we might be unified in one spirit. So so that the, the fear of opposition and suffering would be cast out. So that you can live in complete joy in the midst of a harsh world for the sake of Christ. And to be a community of love that stands out in Carrollton and makes an impact in this place because of what God's doing in you and through you. So I invite you this morning to put your hopes and your dreams and your trust in the Lord Jesus. Embrace the struggle and strive together. He'll never let you down. You know, Jesus said that the wicked would hate him. And so he said, therefore, they'll hate us as well. The opposition hates the Lord. And if he hate, they hate the master, they'll hate the servants as well. And, and that's especially true of the religious enemies of the cross. But you see, their hatred for us reveals the glory of God in us because there's only one reason that anyone would ever hate a unified church filled with love. And that's because they hate Jesus. So the apostles rejoiced that they were considered worthy of being hated for loving Christ. It's an honor, it's a badge to be identified with the lover of the world. So here's what the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, the victory that, that God gives us, the victory that the Lord Jesus brings us is about never losing sight of this truth, that we have been given faith as a gift, along with suffering, all for the sake of knowing Christ, and that his glory might be revealed in us and his glory would be revealed to us so that with great joy and unity we'll labor for the kingdom purposes of our Lord, knowing that everything we do in Christ and everything that is done to us because of Christ makes an eternal difference. That's so good. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we honor you this morning that you have given us the Lord Jesus. You say sometimes someone would love a good man, but no one loves a bad man, and we were all bad men and women. And yet... The Lord Jesus came even while we were still in sin and died for us. That's an amazing truth, Lord, and we honor you for it. So our prayer is simple, Lord, that you would increase our faith even especially in the midst of suffering, that you would bring this church together in great unity, that, Lord, those who are on the fringe who are not sure about plugging deeply into the life of the community here would engage and give and receive the love that 
so desperately needed, and that this community, Lord, would make an enormous difference in the life of the college, in the life of the, 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 uh, the neighborhoods here, make an impact among those who need mercy. Lord, in all ways that the kingdom brings about change, would you bring it about through this little church? For the glory of Christ and for our own joy, we pray it. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.